The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. Today we continue our study through the book of 1 Timothy together as we come to this controversial portion of God's Word. I say that it is controversial because of some of the things that we just read to you. If I were to read that in some audiences, in the presence of some audiences today, I think about halfway through that reading I would have had to duck behind the pulpit because hymnals would have begun, or hymnals would have begun flying in my direction. That's why we have a pulpit that is this large up here. It serves as a barricade and a, a wall of protection against angry parishioners. But we look at today some responsibilities for both men and women respectively. Much of what is said to the men, however, can apply to the women. And even though some of what Paul says is specific to sisters in the church, the principles behind what he says to the women as it relates to modesty and humility certainly applies to the men. What have we what we have read just a moment ago is occasionally taken out of context and misunderstood and some of what we just read is outright ignored by a large number of believers today. We're going to take this basically in three parts. First looking at verse 8 and the exhortation for men everywhere to lift up holy hands. Secondly, we hope to look at this exhortation to the women as it relates to their modesty, modest apparel. And then finally, we consider Paul's remark that he suffers not a woman to teach and what it means for a woman to be in silence, what capacity that falls in. And, and we hope to grip you with that thought in mind as we read that. Does that mean that it is wrong for a woman to say anything in church, or does Paul have something very specific in mind? And we'll save that for the very end, so we all have to pay attention until then. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, as we begin today, we Reflect back on the last two messages as you read in verse 8, I will therefore that men pray everywhere. What we read today isn't an island unto itself. It doesn't exist as language in a vacuum, but what we are reading follows along this context that we've been studying for the last two weeks together. Paul's exhortation that prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all sorts of men for those that are in charge, for those that are leaders, for those that are different than us. Not only should we pray for those that we love, it is easy to pray for people you love. It is difficult to pray for people who are persecuting you. And again, as we review this morning, Paul exhorts these believers not only to pray for people that they know and love, people who are good to them, people who are kind to them, but he exhorts that they pray for all sorts of men, namely for kings and for all that are in authority. I remind you of what we said in this message from 1 Timothy 2, 1, that when Paul says to pray for kings and for all that are in authority, he's writing to people who are under the authority of kings who arrest believers, who jail believers, who imprison believers, who beat believers, and even who execute believers. So when Paul says that I would that you would pray for kings and all in authority, these are evil kings. These are evil authorities many times. But as we consider the concept of authority, we know that any secular authority is just that authority. Paul also has in mind people who are centurions and Roman soldiers and governors and King Herod and any other type of authority in his day. And so this is applicable to us as we think about our city council and we think about our county commissioners and we think about our governor and our legislators, our president, our vice president. We should pray for all sorts of men, especially those who are in authority. And as we studied last week on Easter Sunday, the reason that we pray with confidence for all types of men is because God will have all types of men to be saved. Salvation isn't excluded or exclusively upon those who are poor or those who are Caucasian 
or those who are European or those who are Jewish, but God will have all sorts of men to be saved. And therefore, by extension of that, God will have all sorts of men to come to the knowledge of the truth. And therefore, we should pray for our leaders, not only that they make wise decisions, but when God in his sovereignty rescues them from death and trespasses and in sins, that they would, as we have, come to the knowledge of the truth. What a great blessing is it when our elected officials not only come to know the Lord, but come to follow him in spirit and in truth. What a wonderful thing it is when men who have political authority call upon the name of the Lord and read his word and reverence him. That isn't out of the question. It may seem as if it's out of the question in today's time, doesn't it? All kinds of leaders pay lip service to Christ. But when it comes to agreeing with what the Word of God actually says about any number of controversial issues, they begin to make exceptions and speak in circles because they really don't mean what they say when they speak of their affection for Christ. I could probably and probably should tell you the the story as we think about God calling all sorts of men into his presence, into his fellowship. In the previous generation, the Speaker of the House was a man named Sam Rayburn. How many of you have heard of Sam Rayburn? We have one brother here who was raised in Texas. If you're raised in Texas, you know who Sam Rayburn is. As I was preaching last month in the Louisville Primitive Baptist Church, we were on the I believe it's the Sam Rayburn Highway, and I pointed at that name and told the children who that man was. But he was a Speaker of the House for many, many years, for decades. He was one of the most powerful men in this country, and he actually belonged after his retirement to a primitive Baptist church. He took the shoes off his feet the day that he joined the church, and he walked up the aisle, and he presented himself for membership with tears that... He was on holy ground, and he he asked to be received as a sinner, as a member of the church there, and he was baptized. And when he passed away, there in the audience, there in the auditorium, as the gospel was preached, were presidents of the United States and congressmen and senators. And I have a picture of that event, and the look on some of their faces was not as pleasant as the looks on your faces here this morning. But sometimes God calls powerful men... Sometimes God calls wealthy men. Sometimes God calls even the leaders of our our nation into fellowship with him. And how good of a thing it is when a man professes Christ and honors Christ in a position of authority. What we read today as we begin reading these instructions for both men and women is Paul's exhortation. He concludes this, that men therefore pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now, I have a lot to say about this passage, and for just a small collection of words, there's so much contained in verse 8. First of all, we observe that men are to pray everywhere. To us in our time today, that may not seem as a significant point. We can pray everywhere, and we pray everywhere. Jesus instructed that men should pray without ceasing and never to faint. That men ought always to pray and never to faint when he gave the parable of the unjust judge, of a, a poor widow woman coming to a judge and pestering him day in and day out, asking him to avenge her of her enemies. And finally, he's an unjust judge. He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect man. But finally, he's so tired of, his, of her continual annoyance of him. He finally gives in and gives her what she wants, so she leaves him alone. And of course, that's a parable to teach us that as that woman continually went before that judge, we are to continually pray, and we are to pray and not to faint. Paul wrote that we should pray without ceasing, very famous words. We're to continually pray. So we understand that we are to pray everywhere, but put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jewish believer. To the Jew in the first century, prayer was not something that was offered everywhere, though there were men who prayed everywhere. Where was the center of prayer and prayer life to the first century Jew? Well, it was in the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews had it in their mind that the temple was the place to pray. And so when they prayed, they went to the temple to pray. Now, they prayed everywhere. And you find examples of people praying everywhere. But in their mind, the place where prayer was most likely to be heard, the place where prayer was to be made the most often 
was in the temple of God. Several examples of this in the Word of God. When Solomon commissioned the temple in the book of 1 Kings chapter 8, even in his prayer as he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the congregation of Israel, he spoke of the temple and he said that when they pray, he begs God to have respect unto his prayer. Look at verse 28. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee to this day, that thine eyes may be open to this house. And so when they pray, he asks God that he would bless when they look at that place and they pray toward that place, that God would what? Verse 30, that he would see the supplication of the people of Israel when they pray toward the temple and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and when thou hearest, forgive. In other words, God says, or Solomon says to God, Lord, I want this place, this house, to be the center of prayer in the entire world so that no matter where your children are, if they look geographically towards the temple and they pray towards the temple, that you in heaven see their prayer and hear their prayer and answer and what? And forgive. Now, why do you believe that this concept of praying away from Jerusalem but towards Jerusalem and the concepts of forgiveness comes into play that God would forgive as they're somewhere other than Jerusalem praying towards the temple. Well, maybe Solomon understands that this is a people that is going to end up one day in captivity. And when they're in captivity, Solomon in this prayer asks God to hear when they look to Jerusalem and they pray in that direction and that God would hear their prayer and forgive. This would be a good opportunity to speak to the fact that as we pray, we pray to God, but at the same time, there's a lesson that is to be presented to God's children when they hear. Solomon prays to God audibly in the presence of these people, but his prayer to God was also an exhortation for them to what? To look to that place and pray. Because they heard him say that, Lord... When they look to this place and they pray, wherever they may be in the world, hear them and forgive them. And so we see that in the Old Testament, the temple was an emphasized place of prayer. Again, they prayed anywhere and everywhere they were. But when they prayed, and even in captivity, they would turn their eyes towards the holy city and pray. I hope Paul's language to pray everywhere is becoming more significant to you. Look at the book of Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is, we find Daniel here in this context. Daniel is an old man. At this point, Daniel is not the young Hebrew that was stolen away from his land in the siege of Nebuchadnezzar, but this is under the authority of Darius the Mede. And so Daniel has already lived some 70 years in captivity in Babylon. He was taken away from his home as a teen. Here, after seven decades in captivity, the Medo-Persians have overthrown the Babylonians and they're enabling the children of Israel to go back in and to rebuild and inhabit their land. They're more friendly to these people, as sometimes the Babylonians were. But the problem here is that there are certain people who are jealous of Daniel. And they sought, these president, uh, presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no occasion or fault. In other words, Daniel wasn't sinning. Daniel wasn't living in an offensive way. Daniel was an upright man. He was a good man. At this point, again, he was a very aged man, probably 85 years of age. And so they say, if we can't condemn Daniel 
through sin or the breaking of law will make it illegal for Daniel to pray to his God. Look at verse 5. These men said, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. And so these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and they convinced the king, they lobby the king to pass a law that for 30 days it is illegal for any man to pray except to the king. And if any man does, he shall be cast into a den of lions. Now this sets up the familiar account that we all know of Daniel and the lion's den. As we spoke through the book of Daniel years ago, we pointed out that much of the contemporary art and even some of the children's books of Daniel showing little teenage Daniel in the lion's den displays an ignorance of the Word of God because this is an old man. Some of the best art that you can find, I love how art and religion sometimes blend together both in terms of music and in paintings and sculptures, but the most accurate art depicts an aged, gritty, weathered, white-headed man standing with his arms clasped in the midst of a den of lions. This man, Daniel, is cast into the lion's den. What was Daniel doing, however, in verse 10 when they find opportunity to accuse him? Darius signs this decree. It is now illegal for 30 days to pray to anyone but himself. When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house. He's not ignorant of this. His windows being opened in the chamber towards where? Towards Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did a four times. Daniel knows that this is illegal. Daniel goes into his house. The window is open. Through the window, he looks toward Jerusalem and he prays. I love the gall of Daniel here. Oh, it's illegal? That's cute. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I don't need your permission to do it because this is between me and God, and I'm not afraid of you. But notice where it is that Daniel turns his focus as he prays. He does it towards Jerusalem. What does that illustrate? It illustrates that in the mind of Jews and Hebrews for over a thousand years, the focus of prayer in this world was towards Jerusalem. When you pray, you do it either in the temple or towards the temple. And so this was their custom, to pray either in or towards the temple in the holy city. Now, was that inappropriate? No, it wasn't inappropriate. No one is ever condemned for doing that. What is in the holy city? The temple of God. What is in the temple of God? The holy of holies. What is in the holy of holies? The ark of the covenant. What happens atop the Ark of the Covenant. God appears in His glory. And so God's physical presence was there above the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, in Jerusalem. And so this was an appropriate thing to do. What took place at the crucifixion of Christ as He cries out with a loud voice and He gives up the ghost? The earth begins to quake and what happened in the temple? The veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. What is that indicating? Well, first of all, the separation between God and man is no more through the offering of Jesus Christ. But it also demonstrates the fact that God is no longer exclusively revealing himself to people and manifesting himself to people inside the Holy of Holies into which no one but the high priest had access. And so there in the ripping of that veil, God is saying, I am out of this place. I am now manifesting myself in a great way to all of those who love me and call upon me. There on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came pouring into that room and appeared over the disciples with cloven tongues of fire, and there was a sound as as it were of a great wind rushing into the room. What is taking place there? God is present in a physical sense inside of and around those men, things that were reserved only for 
in terms of God's manifest presence, the Holy of Holies, God is now doing in the presence of all of these men wherever they may be. Which brings us into the imagery of God's people being referred to in the New Testament in a metaphor as what? As lively stones in the temple of God. God still manifests Himself in the temple of God, but not the temple that was in Jerusalem. You are the temple of God. You are lively stones that make up the temple of God. Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone, we all as lively stones, as Peter says. Jesus would say that his house was to be called a house of prayer. They had made it into a den of thieves. It was fitting that his house was a house of prayer. His house today is you, and we are to be a house of prayer. You might remember that Jesus, in speaking of true humility and true faith, gives the story of two men who went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a publican. The Pharisee lifts up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, I thank you that I'm not as other men. I do this, I do that, I pay tithes of all that I have, I fast twice in the week. I thank you that I'm not as other men, especially this publican. And there was a publican who went into the temple. He wouldn't so much as lift his eyes to heaven. And he smote on his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one of those two men went home justified? It was the publican. But where is it that they went to pray? It was the temple. The temple was the epicenter of prayer in the world. But what does Paul say here in 1 Timothy 2.8? I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The point here that Paul is making first is that we pray wherever we are. If you're driving down the road, if you're in the bed in the morning when your alarm clock goes off and you're going to bed at night, if you're at the table before a meal, you pray everywhere. And rather than turning your affection to the temple, which God had vacated, you turn your affections to God himself. He is with you. He is your Emmanuel. Through the Holy Spirit, we pray to the Father, in the name of Christ Jesus. Someone asked a question recently, do we pray to the Father, do we pray to Jesus, do we pray to the Holy Spirit? And that's a good question. It's a legitimate question. Do we pray to the Holy Spirit? Do we pray to Christ directly? And the reply that I gave was, we pray to the Father, our Father which art in heaven. We pray to the Father through the Spirit, Romans 8 says the Spirit makes intercessions with groanings that cannot be uttered, and we pray in the name of the Son. Whatsoever you ask in my name, my Father will hear and give. And so we pray to the Father through the Spirit in the name of the Son. That's why we end our prayers here in Jesus' name, and amen. Wherever you are, you can pray. Prayer is not just restricted to one place in the earth. What a blessing is that? To us, we we take this for granted. But imagine thinking, if only I could go to the temple to pray. But you don't have to wait to go to the temple. You can pray anywhere and everywhere. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere. Notice this next expression, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Now, lifting up holy hands is a metaphor for prayer that invokes language of emotion. One of the differences in a lecture and, and preaching is that preaching many times involves emotion, both from the speaker and his perspective, but also from the perspective of the hearer. The point of preaching is to convict and to convert and to uplift and to edify, and we are to be emotionally affected and impacted by the preaching of the Word. It's often joked about certain factions of conservative Christianity that we we are the frozen chosen. I love to see emotion on the faces of the hearers. And while we shouldn't mistake emotion or emotionalism for preaching, 
Preaching isn't determined by the volume of a man's voice or whether he weeps or whether he shouts. Preaching is something that happens when God, the Spirit, is within the speaker and the hearer, and it's, it's a miracle. The Word comes in power and demonstration of the Spirit. Preaching is emotional. And I believe prayer is something that ought to be emotional. Perhaps a good comparison or a good parallel in our own lives would be that of either our children or if you think back to when you were a child, if you have no children, and your child is scared or your child is troubled. When you were scared or when you were troubled and you went to your parents, think about it when something happened in your life and to a three-year-old, everything negative is a tragedy and a calamity, right? My tablet isn't charged. It is the end of the world. I stubbed my toe. Now, that hurts. But those of you that have went through terrible surgeries and cancers and strokes, you know that there are bigger problems in the world than stubbing your toe. And yet I think there are times with, with my five that some of them have cried more in stubbing a toe then Rachel seemed to be affected in birthing a child. Everything is the end of the world. Everything is the end of the world. When a child comes to their parent with their problems, they're emotional, right? When we come to God in prayer, it's okay to be emotional. Think of some of the language that the psalmist would use when they'd write to God, pouring out their complaint to God. It's poetic and it's symbolic, but it's beautiful language. I'm pouring out my problems, and they're not complaining about God. They're, they're expressing their concern. They're pouring out their frustrations, their worries, their fears, their struggles to God. Some of the psalms speak of great catastrophes that are on the horizon, impending doom, and enemies that, that are nigh unto the psalmist and struggles and troubles. And these are real men going through real trouble, and they're worried, and they pour it out before God. When Paul says to lift holy hands, he's, he's invoking language of emotion. In other words, the person that is praying, lifting up holy hands, they're animated, often say that if you want me to stop preaching, handcuff me. Because if, if I can't move my hands, the sermon would stop. Some people talk with their hands. Paul says, I would that men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands. In the book of Acts, Paul would often beckon with the hand. And I believe Stephen also would beckon with the hand as he would preach publicly to people. He's animated in his discourse. He's animated in his delivery. Paul exhorts that men would be animated and emotional in their prayer. God, hear me. It's okay. It's appropriate. And it's encouraged for us to involve our emotion as we pour out our, our petitions to God like a child does. What is the description of the born-again person? The Spirit of God is sent into his heart crying, what? Abba, Father. As a child comes into his father's lap and speaks to his daddy, Abba, Father, we come to God and we pray, and we're encouraged to, to be emotional in that. And we should be very clear at the same time that effective prayer has more to do with the posture of the heart than it does the posture of the physical form. There are men in the Bible that prayed kneeling. There are men in the Bible that collapsed in front of God and prayed. There are men in the Bible that lifted up their hands. And there are men in the Bible that smote on their breast. Peter prayed, Lord, save her, I perish, as he's drowning and reaching out of the water. The posture of the heart is what's important. But at the same time, it is fine and it is appropriate to be emotional when we come to God in prayer. Lifting holy hands in prayer. More than one character in Scripture prayed or referred to prayer as the lifting of hands. Abram did this in Genesis 14.22, speaking to the king of Sodom. Solomon did this in 1 Kings 8, the prayer that we read a part of just a moment ago. Solomon begins that by lifting his hands before the Lord. 
And so this is something that took place in the Bible for men to lift their hands before God. So many times when we pray, even when we pray publicly because we are afraid of putting on a show and, and you don't want to be as those who stood on the street corner praying, putting on a show to be seen of men. So many times we go to the opposite of, extreme, of extremes by restricting ourselves that the emotion of the moment isn't felt. Some of the most powerful prayers that have been uttered are those that are fervent, those that it, it feels as if if you don't pray at that moment, that it is literally the end of, of something that you love. The times that I have felt the closest to the Lord in my life have been times when the prayer need was extremely urgent. A few years ago when one of my dear friend's daughter was hit by a car, I gathered the family around the table and we all joined hands and we prayed and it felt as if if I had opened my eyes that, that Christ was literally there with us. When my mother was facing her brain surgery in 2016, there were moments before we knew the diagnosis and that surgery could treat it. What it was, is it, is it brain cancer? Is it a tumor? Is it benign? Is it an aneurysm? We had no idea. There were moments that we just broke down and we sobbed and we prayed. And there are times where even the words fail you. And it's in those moments when I think we feel the closest to God. Have you been there? Have you felt that? We pray everywhere lifting holy hands not just in the temple, but we can communicate our emotions, our fears. And we know that God is with us. In those moments, every atheistic philosopher would be out of a job. Because those who know Christ know the power of those moments. That is not in your head. That is the Spirit of God present with you. be some other meanings behind the lifting of holy hands. Several commentators think that this might have something to do with the Jews' practice of ceremonially washing their hands. In other words, you have to clean your hands and cleanse yourself from whatever it is that defiled you before God would hear you, and yet Paul says to lift your holy hands. Why are your hands holy? They are holy through Christ, not through vain, carnal, ceremonial washings, not through any works that you have done, but your hands are clean through Christ. The washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Ghost, you have been sanctified, you have been justified by the blood of Christ. It does cleanse us from all iniquity. And so perhaps part of what Paul is saying is also to lift up these hands in prayer that Christ has made holy, which gives us such strength. I know that God will hear my prayer not because I've washed ceremonially my hands, but God will hear my prayer because Christ died for me. And because He died for me, I can boldly come to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Now he continues, without wrath and doubting, in general, according to James, either hinders our prayers. We can come to God in prayer, but at the same time, things that we do can hinder our prayers. James would say that when we pray, we should pray nothing wavering. A man that wavers is like a ship tossed about in the sea. He's double-minded, and a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And James says, let not that man think that he'll receive anything of the Lord. And so we pray nothing doubting. We believe. Now, that doesn't mean that we demand, and it doesn't mean that we can, through our words, as if our words in prayer have some sort of magical power impact reality through the words themselves. It is God that answers, it is God that hears, and it is God that interjects and changes the course of this world. But we are to pray believing. I love the prayer of the three Hebrew boys, in again, in the book of Daniel, when they're commanded to disobey God. It's, you know, God can deliver and God will deliver, O king, but if not, if God doesn't deliver, please understand we will not bow to this idol that you have made. And I believe that that is the prayer of faith. God can and God will, but if it's not his desire, even though I know he can, then God's will be done. We will not yield. At the same time, we pray without wrath. How easy would it be to pray with wrath 
if we were being rounded up, imprisoned by our religious or our political leaders. It would be easy to be angry when the rocks are being flung in your direction. And yet we know through James that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. In moments when we fly off the handle, God's will is not being accomplished. In fact, we're operating in opposition to His will. Verse 9, to the women. In like manner also, which means that what he just said to the men applies to you too, sisters, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. How is that a message that America needs to hear today? With shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. In other words, Paul wouldn't have you to adorn yourself, and we'll speak to what each of these means in just a moment, with this elaborate, lavish, extravagant clothing or jewelry, but he would have you to adorn yourself rather with humility and modesty and with good works. That women adorn themselves in modest apparel. This sets the stage for much of what is about to come as he speaks about women teachers, the capacity that God would have sisters to teach. And you may read that and think, well, sisters can't teach. But as you come to verse 15, you'll see that no women can teach and women should teach only in a certain capacity. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. What does modest apparel mean? Well, the word modest also translates in chapter 3, good behavior. So the word modest means orderly. It means appropriate. The word modest can also mean bashful. Think about what it means to be bashful. I have a couple of children who are more bashful, and when, if you speak to them, they often look away, and they don't, they don't talk to you unless you're alone. And if they're in front of a crowd, they're, they're scared. They're, they're not very comfortable speaking in front of a crowd. Some of my children don't mind being center stage in front of everyone with a spotlight on them. Some of them don't like to be center stage, and, you know, everyone is different. But this concept of modesty, shamefacedness, is the word that he uses here, has reference to internal humility. As we speak about shamefacedness, where do you obviously see the shamefacedness displayed in a person's life? You see it on their what? On their face, because it's shamefacedness. These are two words, shame and face, and then the suffix ness added to it. To have a face of shame. Now, I don't understand Paul is saying that sisters should walk around looking morbid. I don't understand this as a prohibition on makeup. My mentor, somebody asked him about 20 years ago, do you, do you let women wear makeup to your churches? Because there was someone that was interested in coming to church. They didn't want to stand out. And he said, please. <laughs> By all means, wear makeup to church. This is simply saying to display modesty in your life. I, I told Rachel yesterday we were going out on a, a date, and she hadn't put on makeup. And I said, if you don't put on makeup, I won't either. But, you know, the, the old saying is, if, if a man's ugly, he's just ugly. You know, I can't do anything to, to the face to make me look younger or better. I just have to just deal with whatever God and the, the effects of the sun has done to me. Whatever God gave me and whatever the Son has done to me. But this isn't prohibiting things like women wearing makeup. It's not a feigned outer humility. You can pretend to be humble and be the furthest thing from it. You can pretend to be modest and be the furthest thing from it. When Paul writes to wives in, excuse me, when Peter writes to wives when he's addressing working out conflicts in the home, in his first epistle, he speaks about the inner heart 
And the point there is that a woman could be, by all outer indication, submissive and loving and kind and reverent to her husband, but on the inside be screaming and angry and harsh and bitter. And Peter's exhortation is to govern the inside, and then you have no trouble with that which is on the outside. Much of the warfare that a believer faces is on the inside, not the outside. And if we would work on governing our internals, governing our heart, governing our mind, governing the things that we think about, governing patience on the inside, humility on the inside, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have with what we do on the outside. When we argue with someone or we scream at someone or we become angry in traffic or we bite the head off of a coworker or snap at our wives or respond with harshness and anger to our children, if we would govern what's on the inside, the outside is much easier to control. This isn't a feigned humility, shamefacedness. It isn't just merely disfiguring the face to appear to be humble. This would violate what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount when He said, when you fast, don't disfigure your face to let others know that you're fasting. Don't go around looking with a grimace so everyone knows, but anoint your head, anoint your hair. Make it to where others around you don't even know that you're fasting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but with good works. And this, again, is what becomes professing godliness, women professing godliness. If you've ever heard the expression, the dress is very becoming to her, that's what it means, which becometh women professing godliness. It enhances the beauty of an individual. Ladies, let me tell you what enhances your beauty. Godliness, humility, modesty. Now, that's not what the world around you wants you to believe. That isn't what the women in Hollywood depict before you, is it? Not at all. Young ladies, I want you to understand that what makes you beautiful in the eyes of God is not flaunting yourself to get the attention of other young men. But in actuality, that diminishes your value. That diminishes your worth. That's not becoming. It isn't what makes a woman genuinely attractive. Now, I'm not telling you to, to go and to wear a burqa or to dress as if you're Amish or anything such as that. Please don't do that. But you know what I mean when I talk about dressing in a modest way. Scripture says that modesty is beautiful. Modesty is beautiful should always remember that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to Christ. And we should be modest. Now this can apply to men as well. This can apply to men as well. Men can be immodest. We should always dress and behave in such a way as to not cause another around us to stumble into sin. I can dress and act in such a way, well, maybe not I, but some people can dress and act in such a way that, that others, it would lead them astray. They would think thoughts that they shouldn't think. We should never behave or act or dress in such a way as to cause a brother or a sister to stumble and to sin. I don't think I need to labor the point anymore. He goes on to list several other things. Shamefacedness, sobriety. The word sobriety means self-control. As believers, we should be people of self-control. The word disciple and the word discipline share a common root. To be disciplined is to be a disciple. To be a disciple is to be disciplined, to be well-taught and well-instructed. Not with broided hair. That's an archaic word for braided. Does this mean that it is wrong for a woman to braid her hair? No. If you have daughters, you know that their, one of their favorite activities is to sit and braid the hair of their best friend. And men don't do this. <laughs> we punch each other, we kick each other, we throw dirt on each other. Men don't do this. But girls love to sit and braid the hair of their, of their best friend. Why that is, I have no idea. <laughs> 
maybe you young ladies, older ladies, you can explain this to me later. But what he has reference to here in the braiding of hair is a practice in that day, especially among women who were wealthy, to take gold and to braid it in with their hair so that their braided hair would be plated with gold. What does that communicate to people who see you? First of all, gold is not an inexpensive metal. It's the flaunting of wealth. If you have enough money to have gold in such excess that you can literally plate your hair with it, obviously that's exuberance and it's extravagance and you're flaunting wealth and riches to those that are around you. And Paul says that is not the way that we should behave or that we should dress. We should not flaunt wealth. Gold, pearls, or costly array, if you look up images of wealthy people in that day, you can get a good picture as to what he's talking about. It's not saying it's wrong to wear a gold wedding band or a watch or a pearl necklace when you perform on stage. This is a matter of extravagance. And he's saying not to be extravagant, to be simple. I love simplicity. We have simplicity all through our service, don't we? And our lives are to be lives of simplicity. This is not an American message. This is a very contrary message to the American way today. Now, the final passages that we consider from this, and we'll move quickly through it. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. Is Paul saying that it is wrong for a sister to sing? That's what absolute silence would mean. No singing, no saying of amen, no weeping, no speaking to anyone else in church. And yet we have examples of women doing all of the above, gathered together, worshiping. When Paul says that women should learn in silence with all subjection, he's speaking about women preachers. Now, this is not popular in today's time, but it's the position of the church since Jesus instituted the church. As explained in verse 12, when he says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. In what capacity? In preaching. This is why we don't have women preachers. Why? Because God said it in his word. And let God be true in every man a liar. It's not anything against sisters. Please understand, sisters, the large majority of men are not granted the office of elder or pastor or bishop. Concerning the ministry, God calls only men to preach and a very small minority of men at that. Now, why does Paul say this? Well, he bases this upon the order of the home in creation. In other words, this is the way that God has created the structure of the home. He suffers not a woman to teach. That means to preach. Women are not enabled, allowed to preach. That's not anything against women. No more than it is against men that he doesn't call. Nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was first formed, then Eve. Seems like Paul believes in a literal creation, doesn't he? Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now, that's not a knock at Eve. She was beguiled by Satan. Adam willingly sinned. So if you think, well, that sounds like Eve was tricked. Adam willingly violated the command of God. It wasn't through the sin of Eve that sin entered into the world, was it? It was through the sin of Adam. Sin is upon his hands. He is the guilty party through which we are all condemned. And yet he was the head of that house. Adam wasn't tricked into doing that. Eve was. He was the head of the house. He should have known better. And because of his transgression, we all have this universal condemnation. Death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All have come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
The reason that the woman is not allowed to preach is because God placed a spiritual structure of authority in the home. How do you know it was a spiritual structure of authority? When Adam violated the law of God, was, were there spiritual ramifications? There sure were. In fact, death passed upon all men through sin when Adam violated the law of God. And so Paul is basing this mandate that only men are to be ordained as preachers on the order, the spiritual order of authority in the home. I would issue the caveat, this by itself is offensive in our present day. If it's carried beyond its intent, it's even more offensive, and there's no need for that. This isn't silence in general, but silence in teaching. This also isn't discrimination against women. God chose to give people different roles. This is His world. He does what He wants, and He didn't need my permission. That's why He waited till the sixth day to make man, because He didn't want any advice on how to do days one through five. <laughs> To illustrate this, there are joys that both men and women experience that are inherent to their identity as a man or a woman that the other won't experience. What do you mean by that? There are joys that you sisters have experienced in carrying a child that I will never know. I don't know what it's like to have a baby growing inside of my body, to feel the baby kick, to... Feel the baby grow, to deliver a baby, to bring a being into the world. I don't know how that feels. Now, I can put a bottle in its mouth, but I don't know what it's like to nurse a baby, to feed a baby from my own self, as a nursing mother does. I don't know what that's like. There are blessings in the roles that God gave both the man and the woman that to some degree and some extent, is lost to the other. There are things that you experience that I don't know, and there are things that I've experienced that you don't know, because God has made us that way. Now, this is what we refer to as complementarianism, that men and women have their respective innate abilities and gifts, and that they complement one another. They go together. Twain, God made them male and female. And so as we close today, what does it mean that she shall be saved in childbearing? Does this mean that a woman has to have a baby to go to heaven? No. Saved in childbearing. You want to see a preacher do grammatical gymnastics, ask him what it means that a woman is saved in childbearing. What did Paul just say? That a woman is not allowed to preach. However, she is saved from what? Silence through what? Childbearing. You sisters, even though God grants only to a very small minority of men to preach the gospel, I want you to understand every single one of you is saved from silence and preaching when you preach to your children. I want you to be the preachiest mamas the world has ever known. Preach to those babies. Every morning, all through the day, every night, you sisters are saved in the bearing of children you got a congregation. You have an audience who cannot get away. I've got this congregation for one hour a week, unless you come on Wednesday nights, and then it's another 45 minutes every other week. You've got them 24 hours a day, an audience that you can preach the gospel to as we're saved from that, as you sisters are saved from that in childbearing.